New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Gustave Flaubert was an influential French novelist who was perhaps the leading exponent of literary realism in this country. He lived and wrote in the 1800s, and one of his most famous novels was Madame Bovary. His last complete novel was Sentimental Education, which is considered to be one of the great French novels of the 19th century. Our guest today is also a novelist, and she has said that writing and reading fiction can be an exercise in empathy, and empathy, in turn, can create compassion, and there's no denying that we need more compassion and empathy in these threshold times. Today we'll be looking at the art of fiction and what prehistoric times have to teach us in this postmodern era with our guest, Dr. Mary Mackey. Mary Mackey is an American novelist, poet, and academic. She is the author of seven collections of poetry and 14 novels. Her most recent novel, The Village of Bones, is a prequel to the three other novels of the Earth Song series. Altogether, these novels cover 30 years in the lives of the people of Neolithic Europe, and about 26 years of Mary's writing life. Join us for the next hour as we explore the matristic culture of prehistoric times with our guest, Dr. Mary Mackey. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Mary, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Justine. It's a pleasure to have you as well. Um, I in that introduction, I mentioned the term matristic, mm-hmm. and people may not be aware of that term. We think of these times, prehistoric times, maybe as um, uh, matriarchal, mm-hmm. but you make a distinction. So what, what is that? Well, the distinction between matriarchal and matristic, well, it's actually the distinction between patriarchy is men in charge. Matriarchy would be women in charge. It would be the flip side of patriarchy. Matristic is a more collaborative, partnershiped, uh, communal way of governing. It's a way in which the earth is seen as a great uh, mother that brings forth life and is worshipped for that. But at the same time, it's not a society in which women exercise over men the same kind of power that you would have in a patriarchal society that men would exercise over women. So it's a gentler term. It's a more uh, egalitarian term. So it really, it it sounds like it's 
feminine based. Mm-hmm. It is be- this is because these cultures were goddess worshiping, and therefore the cultures um, had women and men in high positions, but many of the higher religious positions were female positions because the idea of the earth as a mother that brings forth life brought forth priestesses who were representatives of the great mother. Now, sometimes these priestesses were men, but I think they were more frequently women. Uh, Research seems to indicate that. And sometimes they were of indeterminate gender, Um, uh, something which you may have noticed in The Village of Bones in my novel, where the major priestess of prophecy or priest of prophecy has no specific gender. So it's a more inclusive term. So what were the archaeological indications of this that you say that that it's... Right. Well, uh, since I'm a novelist, not an archaeologist, I can only draw on secondary sources. And my major source was the work of uh, the late Maria Gambudis, a professor at UCLA, who did extensive archaeological research in Europe. And this is a story about European culture. And one of the things that impressed me the most is a series of little goddesses sitting around in a council. Uh, And these goddesses are... Uh, snake goddesses, and they're all women, and they're sitting in a console. They're actually sitting around, um, you know, obviously running something, um, you know, having some kind of power that way. There are also the images that, and most of what we have, by the way, is ceramic and pottery. If there were images in wood and straw, those have not survived. But the images we have are mostly female images from these cultures. And another one, for example, um, when I went to Romania and Bulgaria, I saw in the museums um, these images, these uh, altars to the bird goddess, and they're often female bird, bird-like creatures that are half female, half bird. And some of them were actually dovecots, where the birds could actually nest in them. So they were both a combination of the birds and the, and the goddess imagery. So there's a great deal of female imagery from these cultures. So it, with, uh, when you say that the women were in council, was this like a single piece that had all yes, these it had all of these yes all these little different women sitting around in fact i have photographs of it on my website which is and it's a lovely little piece they're small they're little they're in miniature uh-huh. they're very very so pretty so if people want to see that go to marymackey.com and yes. mackey is m a c k e y m a c k e y and um You'll see on that website something that says pictures from uh, photographs from 6,000 years ago. Well, obviously, I don't have a time machine. I didn't take them 6,000 right. years ago. But these are the artifacts from 6,000 years ago. Right. And you can see a whole display of these um, female uh, images of worship. Well, that just reminds me when you say uh, 6,000 years ago and we don't have a time machine. But you have said that uh, imagination is. Uh, can be lead to empathy and empathy is can be a kind of time travel. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? That's such a provocative statement. Well, I think that you know cultures change, political situations change, worlds are discovered, destroyed, abandoned. I mean all sorts of things happen historically. But I think the basic human emotions, and you mentioned Flaubert earlier, the basic sentiments, and and sentimental education is about the education of sentiments. The basic human sentiments remain constant throughout time. And so when you see people 
Um, you know, even people, the people that I write about are fairly advanced. They have weaving and bread making and such. But if you go back even farther where people have stone axes and they're not less intelligent than we are, they don't have less feeling for their children. They don't have less desire to live. They're like we would be if we had grown up in those cultures, changed by the cultures, but not changed with the human emotions. I think there's a basic humanity. And I think that literature can put you in the skin of other people, in the footsteps of other people, and let you live other lives in other cultures and other ways and understand your connection with them. I think it does build empathy. I think it's a very important part of education. I spent many years as a professor teaching literature, and I think literature helps us learn not just what happened, but what the people were like who made it happen. I'm just uh, recalling someone who said uh, this about the recent gathering of women and men in in some marches that mm -hmm. happened um, in January of 2016. They happened all over the world. 2017. Uh, I mean, excuse me, <laughs> 2017, exactly. Oh, my goodness, where am I? And, and uh, they commented on all the different signs that people were carrying. Mm -hmm. There were like all sorts of different issues that were mm -hmm. being uh, brought up mm -hmm. throughout the crowds. And someone pointed out that the underneath, the bedrock underneath all of those issues was the issue of empathy and kindness. Mm -hmm. and, and healing and compassion. And healing I think that that is the antidote to hatred and attacks and discrimination. Um, one of the major antidotes is to understand other people as people and feel compassion for them. I mean, that is our, in some ways, our great duty in life is to become more loving and compassionate, I think. I think that is the, if you had a purpose in life, I think that would be one of your major purposes. So going back to, to your novels, what is the importance of looking at these prehistoric times, this old culture in mm -hmm. Europe, the change that's going on there when, well, first describe the change that is going on. Well, the on. change is, it looks like that for 10,000 years approximately, more or less, um, there were these stable, small villages. Um, there were actually a few cities in Europe. Um, they lived in relative peace. They did, the horses did not, uh, was not in Europe. It had died out after the last ice age. And I think be, partly because of this, you, didn't, you don't find signs of genocidal warfare. You don't find signs of um, heavy differences between the sexes. People are buried in graves that have pretty much similar tools, men and women. You don't find great dif you know, gender dimorphism in this kind of thing. And what you have is you don't find fortified villages. You don't find uh, weapons of war. You don't find weapons that are, I mean, you find obviously axes and knives to skin animals and things for hunting, but you don't find a panoply of war weapons. What happens about the period my novel starts and which is about is that there's an invasion from the steppes of what's now the Ukraine, um, Ukraine, um, the Eurasian steppes, and the horses reintroduced by nomadic people who um, don't worship the earth 
they worship the sky. They're sky worshipers. Well, how did that come about? Do you have any speculation? I have theories about it. No one yeah. knows, of course. Yes. But I have the theory that it was very rough in the steppes and the earth rough itself. Meaning rough, you know, hard, hard life, hard, hard life. cold, dry, you know, difficult. It's not an agricultural situation. Nothing to stop the winds. Nothing to stop the winds. And you're not, you're not um, growing plants out of the earth. You're herders. You're laying herds. And the sky is huge above you, full of stars. And, you know, that's the dominant moment and on the steps would be that. But be that as it may, we don't know. All we know is that they were a patriarchal culture. We know they're patriarchal because you find uh, these grave mounds called kurgans, these huge mounds in which you find uh, chiefs, leaders who are buried with lots of gold because they're very interested in gold and they've slaughtered horses in the graves and they've slaughtered their dogs and they've slaughtered women and children and put them in the graves with them. So you see a very different sort of social organization. So you'll see one male figure. One, one major and... male figure with lots of stuff, and then women, children, horses, and dogs sacrificed in the same grave to accompany him probably to the afterlife. Whereas the other graves... The other graves are communal. They're often family graves, DNA says. There are people with just small artifacts. Nobody has apparently, we can't tell, but you know, it doesn't look like anybody's been sacrificed along with people. They're buried in... Um, often womb-shaped, sometimes womb-shaped cavities in the earth in the older cultures. And so what happens is when these cultures come in, it takes a long time for this invasion. I mean, this is not like Hitler rolling into Poland. It doesn't take a couple of days. It takes 1,000, 1,200 years for them to come in. But as soon as they start coming in, you see the first fortified villages in Europe. You see the signs of the older culture burned, people slaughtered genocidally, and the forts built on top of them. You see the sacrifices in the graves. You see weapons of war. And what you see is that the horse, not by the way, not the fall of the horses. You see a genocidal warfare uh, and conquest entering Europe. And you see a religion entering Europe that no longer uh, worships the earth as sacred. So, so we'll talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Mary Mackey, and she's the author of many novels, Her most recent one is The Village of Bones, Savala's Tale, and it's a prequel to the other three novels in the Earth Song Song series, uh, the first of which is The Year the Horses Came. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, marymackey.com, and she spells her name M-A-C-K-E-Y. MaryMackey.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Mary Mackey, and she's the author of the 
Earth Song series, uh, which is a series of three books plus a prequel, and that's really what we're we're about today: the Village of Bones, which is a prequel. Um, and so, tell me why why a prequel? Why why not write another book in just a series and take us on into the future of of the series, you you went backwards. What caused you to do that? Well, the reason I went backwards was that I was the the, the three books in the series uh, involved the time just before the invasion and the first contact, um, then the invasion itself, and then the next generation of children who are half nomadic, half what I call the mother people. So it it follows on a, on a small scale over a period of about. 20 years of that. I went back to the prequel because I wanted to look at these societies before the horse was introduced. I wanted to see more thoroughly how they were organized and how they were, um, what they were like in their flourishing um, in 10,000 years there. Also, it's interesting that you brought up earlier the thing about compassion because what you see in the Village of Bones is the beginning of a tr- an attempt to both resist um, evil, you know, resist invasion, resist this, and at the same time, compassion uh, and conversion to the uh, virtues of the mother cultures of peace and compassion and equality and respect for the earth. And so I wanted to look at the origins of that. And I, you know, really the Village of Bones partly is a book about, about compassion and conversion. And it's done in a slightly different way than the nomadic part, but it leads right into it. I also wanted you to see what what the underpinnings were, what the what the culture was that that is is flourished for so many years. Because it begins to disappear in the first book of the year the horses came, in the first book of the series. And in this you get to see it in its full flower. Completely. So what I what I get in in reading it is is like you are talking about you're imagining what it might be like to hold on to compassion and loving in the wake of this onslaught of um, aggression. Yes. Yes. How do you how do you do that? And you know, it's it was a real question for me. I'm not a complete pacifist, but in the in the series I was presented with the problem of these people are being uh, attacked and how do they defend themselves without becoming like the enemy because if you become like the enemy if you're filled with all the hatred that your enemy has then you've lost and so how did they do it so I tried to make them pacifists and they were slaughtered every time I tried to write a version of that just like sheep and so I had to find middle grounds and more subtleties in the ways they defended themselves and the way they thought about their world and you'll notice you know in the books the nomads aren't all bad they're not like just a black force and men certainly are not all bad there are very wonderful warm compassionate male characters throughout these novels. And so I wanted to look at the human subtleties of this kind of situation versus the almost black-white version of of invasion and destruction. So it's like, how do we become effective Yes, without just succumbing to the same tactics? Yes. How do as... we resist without losing our souls? Good, well said. Resist without losing our souls, exactly. And one of the surprising things that came up in the novel, it certainly surprised me, was that you introduce at some point in this particular novel, The Village of Bones, a species other than human. And in researching that, you you have come up with um, some interesting ideas and but that must have been a surprise to you i mean was it yeah, well not really the 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 first novel in the series 
traced the uh, in the year of the horses game traced the ver- uh, the journey of a young priestess Marah all the way across Europe from Brittany to the Black Sea. And in the prequel, her mother um, carries her from the Black Sea to Brittany as a baby, basically. And it would certainly be boring to simply <laughs> recapitulate the journey in the other direction. And I also wondered what else was there? What in this great untracked land was there? And being a novelist, I have a great, uh, I have a, uh, I can use both imagination and uh, research, and I'm allowed to imagine things that you couldn't, if you were writing a a serious archaeological, even sociopolitical piece, you couldn't do. And I thought, could there have been left in the forest other species of human-like people? Because, you know, there used to be at least five. uh, We found at least five different species that were somewhat human. What would they have been like? Were they like, you know how if you find an island, you have remnants sometimes of older species? Or say, if you go to somewhere like Costa Rica, if you go up in the mountains, you'll find animals that were stranded there when the continents, you know, moved. They're, They're very ancient. You know, they're always finding, you know, fossil sharks, all sorts of things. And I thought, well, what if there were just, you know, how did we interact with with beings who were human but not homo sapiens. How would we interact with them? And I, I thought, you know, would it have been a reaction of hostility? Would it have been a reaction of companionship? And I also became really intrigued with the idea that perhaps, and this is just speculation, that fairy tales that have elves and fairies and gnomes and things in them, were those memories of other human-like creatures that had slightly different ways of living? You might call it different kinds of power. And did we have contact with them and pass? We did have contact with them. We know that we mated with Neanderthals. We have Neanderthal DNA. Did we mate with the other ones? Were, did we absorb them by mating with them? Did we... Did we uh, oppose them? Did we welcome them? And I was so fascinated with the idea of what would it be like um, to find people, I'm going to call them people, who have human emotions, but who have different physical appearances and perhaps different senses even in some ways. And I was very intrigued and it was one of the things I wanted to explore. So in the dark forests of uh, what would someday become France, uh, Sabala, my heroine, uh, encounters people who are perhaps the origin of dwarfs and elves and fairies um, who are a slightly different species, whose bones some of which we've found and analyzed. So that's certainly fascinating to think mm-hmm. uh, it, that, that those early stories might have some sort of basis in, in actual life. Because they're such ancient stories. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Ancient tales. And, you know, there was at one point when Homo sapiens, when human beings lived with other humans other human-like things. Yes. We did. And so do we retain any memory of it? And what would it have been like? I just found and there was it utterly a kind fascinating. Of, and when in writing about that in, or in reading it, I could, I could feel some compassion for these people that wanted to, to survive. Yes. And, but then there were these other... So it's kind of a dual thing that the, at first, uh, Sabala and, and her, her tale of leaving where she is and the invasion of the beastmen mm-hmm. or the, the horsemen. Mm-hmm. So they're fleeing that. And then she finds this other culture that's fleeing them. Yes, yes. You know, yes. so and it's it, it's kind of this double whammy. And but she has she, to look at it. Yeah. And you, so we all have to look at it. Right. Like where, where are we in this 
tapestry. And, and you know, the other human-like people, the other people who are not human beings but who are human-like, those are like vanishing species, too. Yes. I mean, they're rare. They were, Somehow they died out. Were they eliminated? Did they just die because they couldn't compete? Did they die of plagues? Did they just not reproduce? Are we them? <laughs> Did we reproduce with them? And so I was interested. So there, it's like, you know, we want to defend tigers and, and keep them from being eliminated. But tigers aren't real friendly if you meet them one-on-one in the jungle. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. so it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Exactly, exactly. So just talking about fairy tales, uh, if we can talk about that for a moment, and just talk about the whole um, idea of the troubadour, the the passing on of stories, the storyteller, the traveling yes. storyteller. And one of your characters really yes. holds that. One of my main characters uh, is a troubadour, is a storyteller. And actually, the book begins with a poem by him. It's a poem to the earth, a very beautiful poem to the earth. And he writes, you know, he tells stories. He has the oral history. He has the hymns. He has the poems. And he travels around all over Europe from a, one little culture to another because this is not a monolithic culture. It's a, like little different kinds of ways of being in different places and, you know, sings for his supper, basically. And he brings the stories and histories of people uh, to them. And some of them are myths and some of them are actual history and it's all mixed up just the way the ancient epics are. You know, when I was in school, I, I read Beowulf and I read, you know, those epics and, and I uh, thought of, you know, what stories those must have come out of. In fact, in Beowulf, you know, you remember there's uh, perhaps Grendel and his mother, they almost sound like different human species that aren't homo sapiens, if you think about it that way. Now, right. that's just pure speculation. No decent professor of ancient history would ever find any proof of it, I don't think. But I love to, as a novelist, I love to play with the idea that those monsters from the past might also be some kinds of memories of different encounters. Right, exactly. So if if once we have written language, like what, what you're writing about is pre-written yes. language. Yes, yes. And, and that's where it takes place. And once we have written language, there's a shift mm-hmm. that happens in uh, culture. A major shift, yes. As a matter of fact, when the old myths are written down, they're changed profoundly. For example, when Beowulf was recorded, it was recorded by monks. And they took out the word Thor, who <laughs> was one of the gods in it, and they put in the word God, as in the uh, Judeo-Christian God, so that they would change and modify it from the original, so that the myth... The so that they're changed and modified in every, and then they were frozen forever uh, in the manuscripts uh, in history. These stories that had been organic and changed probably by their audiences and the troubadours themselves. And they were memorized, you know. Um, if you look at the old, for example, I just go back to Beowulf. If you look at that, it's written in a kind of, it doesn't, not a rhymed verse, but in alliteration and in special beats on the lines so you can remember it the way you can remember a song. And people remembered hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines of them. It was a uh, kind of tray, a, a craft that people learned. Once it's written down, you no longer have to do that and you no longer have the changes. So it's a big change. I think that you've said that, that, They've done research for people who are oral cultures. They have better memories. They do, yes. They tend to have better memories. Now, we don't have to remember anything. We can just no, we Google can, it. We can just Google it. <laughs> or like people can't read roadmaps. And I, I think that you've, you've written down, and this is true of me, like my my ability to do remember the multiplication tables yes. is is 
I, I'm having to refresh myself. I don't always Because I'm always using a calculator now. I know. It's like dependent, starting don't to be use. You don't use yeah. it. It, it tends yeah. to atrophy. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I say very clearly in all these books that there's no written language. Um, I say that as a, a real thing. But in this book, um, in The Village of Bones, we have a, a sacred book, which is written, which is a secret script that, you know, that actually does exist at the time. And there is some speculation that there was, at least 6,000 years ago, a written religious language that might be untranslatable. It's called Cretan Linear B that nobody can translate. There's no Rosetta Stone for it. And so it's possible that there did have, for limited or you know religious purposes, there might have been a script. And this might have appeared more as hieroglyphics. Yeah, so we don't maybe. Yeah, we don't really know. We, we can't. Know. We can't we interpret it. What we do know is that there's a myth that the great. Mother uh, Priestess, the Cumaean Sibyl, went to the last king of Rome with uh, nine books. And she said, these are books of prophecy that will tell you everything in the future. Now, and this is in This fact, is real. This, this is, well, it's historical. historical. Yeah, this is historical written record. Okay. Okay. Now, we don't know, you know, if this is true, but it's as true as any written history. And so, yes, it's written down. Tarquinia, Tarquinius, I think, the last king of Rome. And she offered him these nine books. And he said, how much are they? And she named this outrageous price. And he said, that's too much. And she destroyed in front of him three of the books. He said, oh, that's horrible, you know. Well, what are the, What do you sell me the six for? And he said, uh, she said a big price again, and then he, he, she destroyed them when he refused, and finally he paid the whole price for three books, which Rome consulted at every important point in their history from then on. Wow. I'm here with Mary Mackey. She's the author of the Earth Song series, many other novels as well, and poetry. And her most recent novel is a prequel in the Earth Song series called The Village of Bones. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Mary Mackey, and she's the author of many novels and books of poetry, and the uh, most recent is The Village of Bones, and it's a prequel to the Earth Song series, the first of which the book, The Year the Horses Came. And uh, Mary, we, we were talking about the troubadour culture and talking about the oral tradition, and um, I... I was reminded of an interview we did years ago with uh, Leonard Schlein, who wrote a book called The Alphabet and the Goddess, I think is one of his books. And um, he said something that always stuck with me, that he said, when, the, when you pass something along orally, it has more accuracy hmm. than the written word. And I, I, I thought, wait a minute, how, how could that be? And then we, then he started to explain uh, that how, how we can have many different interpretations. Let's say of the Bible, mm -hmm. or many different interpretations of. We have lawyers that earn their <laughs> whole living on just interpreting a contract, and mm -hmm. we think because it's written down, that means we've got it all set in stone. But he was, he was intimating that. It, the oral tradition 
we we tend to understand the meaning of it in, with greater accuracy. Well, we can also ask questions as it's communicated to us, and also you get the emotional um, feeling behind it that you don't get with something's written. We all know that when we send emails, that's what all those emojis are for, because if we don't have those, you can say something that's meant to be funny or ironic, and you can lose a friend because they don't know exactly. the emotional expression. Often, oftentimes, if, if it's something complicated, I'll mm -hmm. pick up the phone. I'll say, mm -hmm. wait, this is getting too complicated. I'm going to have to talk to someone, you know, yeah. voice to voice, because it, it just gets... Misunderstanding. Yeah. So I actually once wrote a little essay to a group I was in called Email is Not Our Friend. <laughs> and I said, we can't, you know, what's happening is some people feel left out. They get missed. It's it, Mistakes are made. People think it's intentional. And we need to talk to one another um, more often than we do. Exactly. And then there's the eye contact that yes. also is helpful because yeah. if we have too many electronic mm -hmm. uh, filters, then we're, we're losing something else there. Also, you can tell whether people are lying or not when you talk to them in person. You can tell their level. Yeah, we can tell their level of reliability better, yeah, yeah which is yeah, very interesting. Exactly. And then I was thinking also there, there is something that's kind of might be considered bringing the troubadour back, mm -hmm. uh, that culture back, and this is in podcasting. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of people doing podcasts, uh, which are going back to storytelling, and mm -hmm. and it's it, it has, well the problem is it has no filters. But the good thing about that is that everybody can be a publisher and they can yeah. all, all. Of course, what I'd like to see them do is take those stories to a big mead hall where everybody's sitting around with the dogs on the floor and the rushes and and you know actually performing them to to audiences. I think that also has a kind of um, feedback quality that that is that I that I miss. And I love podcasts, but I miss that in them. I miss the human interaction in them, even if it's a silent interaction of an audience. And I think what you get, you know. In these novels is cultures, um, both of the kinds of cultures that are intensely personally interactive, that don't have any other kind of mediation, that you know, you don't even send anybody a letter if you want to contact them. You have to walk to their house, you know, so that, that there's always um, a world of utterly intense personal interaction, which brings to the forefront these ideas of compassion and understanding and uh, dealing with hatreds and arguments in a way that when you're mediated by anonymity, uh, on an electronic platform you don't have. Exactly, exactly. So um, let's talk about taking this. Your, your novels are set in prehistoric times mm -hmm. and or Neolithic times. Neolithic in, times. In, They're all prehistoric, in, yeah. And in, in um, old Europe. Mm -hmm. And the invasion of this other culture, this patriarchal culture, in, in like... Let's just kind of take like a bird's eye view, let's say, if we could possibly, of where we are today. So bringing the principles or the ideas that you have in your novels to this day and time, what would you have to say about where we are well, right now? Well, one reason I got interested in this is I think it was the great wrong turning of Western culture. I think it was a place where Western culture turned away from the earth and turned away from the earth as something, a sacred trust, and at the same time um, became a culture of where the earth is really real estate. 
It's about, you know, expansion and conquest. And Western culture, of course, became world culture for various reasons, certainly has for a while. Whether it will continue, that's another question. I believe the same men on horseback, the same cultural thing happened to the New World, where the horse was reintroduced by the conquistadors. 125 men go into Mexico and, um, you know, basically pit people against one another and have a conquest. So I think that what these novels show us is that there are other ways to look at the earth and there's other ways to look at human relationships and that these things actually did exist and that, you know, human beings are not necessarily predatory. They're not necessarily individualistic. They're not necessarily innately warlike, that they have a wide range of possibilities and that for about 10,000 years, um, there was a different emphasis and a different choice of possibilities that was much more oriented toward preserving and taking care of the earth and much more oriented toward um, the weaker of society being supported. And, you know, it's not, this is not an ideal utopia. I'm sure there were murders. I'm sure that all sorts of things happened, but there was a much less aggressive society. If you look at the California Indians, you find a somewhat similar thing. 5,000 years of small villages, minor warfare, where when somebody got hurt, pretty much everybody ran home. Um, you find a similar existence. So it's a very viable human pattern that I think we can learn from. So you're saying here's an example, an alternative to what how we have been living for the last 5,000 years, so yes, to speak. Yes, exactly. So here's an alternative. We were not always warlike. No. I, I'm, I'm struck by the example you give, and you mentioned this earlier in the program, and I, I want you to to describe it more thoroughly because you you have in some of your writings and conversations, it's about the ceramics that did survive from these Neolithic mm-hmm. times. And the, the ceramics that you find in these older cultures were very, very fine. Can you, can you describe what they were like. You've seen these in Oh, yes, museums. I have. Yes, I went to uh, uh, museums in Romania and Bulgaria, and all. And on, I actually visited all the places in these novels, and I looked at ceramics from these periods. Well, first of all, let me say that I, I thought originally that Neolithic Europe was people in caves with axes. I just had no idea that they had this. I mean, they had trade. They had sailboats, limited sailing. They had weaving, beautiful weaving. There's some Parts of it have been preserved. They actually had artistic ability. These ceramics, the most beautiful of them, have these almost uh, cosmic swirls in them. They're brown and white very often, and they have these swirling patterns and these decorations. They somewhat look like American Indian pottery sometimes. They have chevrons on them. They have spirals all of which have, it's been argued, are religious symbols for infinity, for uh, death and rebirth. And um, the, um, in the temples, you find the kilns to make these things. So both bread baking and pottery and weaving take place in temples as well as elsewhere. So that everything, it's almost as if they didn't make things for use without making them beautiful. That all work had a religious component to it. Now, I, you know, once again... they didn't given, have a potter's wheel or something, did No, they, you, they didn't. They had, they did it. They with, did it the, by, by hand. By hand. They did it by but hand. I don't think they had potter's wheels. I can't remember if they might have in some 
part of the far eastern parts, but mostly they were were handmade uh, pottery. And they're beautiful. But with great precision. Great precision, with a steady hand. I often wondered if they chanted when they did it, often to to, uh, steady themselves. I often wondered if they meditated. I'm just speculating again. I wondered if they did, because they have such uh, perfection of form to them. Um, You know, once again, I've posted some, some photographs on this, and they're really astoundingly beautiful. Now, now you describe how you, you move in, you're in the museum and you're seeing these beautiful, yeah. delicate, artistic pieces. Uh, and you move into another room and now you're seeing the uh, pottery and the artifacts from this other culture. From the nomadic came, From the nomadic, yeah. from the steppes, this mm-hmm. uh, pa- more, pa- yeah. this patriarchal. Which, which is generally called the Kurgan culture. The, yeah, right, the Kurgan yeah. culture. And, and now, what are their artifacts? Well, I don't, you know, like? I, I don't, I have not seen a broader range of them, but the ones I have seen are undecorated, plain pottery, very practical stuff that, you know, you could carry along with you. you uh, they have hooks that you could like tie them on a saddle, you know, over a saddle, like saddlebags or hang them from the top of a tent. They're undecorated. They don't have, don't seem to have religious symbolism on them. If they do have anything on them, it's sun signs. They'd sometimes do, uh, Circles with rays coming out because they were sun worshippers and sky worshippers. Um, you, what you also find is a fantastic technology for weapons of war, things that can kill people from a horse, uh, knives, blades. Um, they're highly like decorated. Spears, maybe. Spear, yeah, spears from horses. They're highly decorated and chased with silver and gold, um, showing their value and gold being a sign of the sun. Um, in them, um, and so you're seeing the all the uh, artistic and craft talent going into the weapons and not going into the artifacts of daily life. So that that can be compared to these days, how much we spend, let's say here in the U.S., how much of our, our national treasure is spent on weaponry. Yes, I think that's a very good analogy. So uh, in, if we look at, at where we are now, going back to that bird's eye view of where we are right now, uh, do you feel that we're at a a possible turning point here we are there are people who are saying there is no such thing as climate change and then those (laughs) people who are saying you know my backyard is flooded right now you know (laughs) whatever uh so there there's this going on right now. i think we're at a very crucial cultural point uh and um i have no i'm not a prophet i wish i had the books but I, what all I can do as a writer is to present the possibilities of some alternatives that will not lead us to destruction. And I think that's the best thing an artist can do. Um, what we can't dream, we can't do. What we can't imagine, we can't see. And what I want to do is help people imagine and see a world that is not a world of conflict, a world that is not a world of destruction and warfare, a world in which people can live in more harmony with one another, in which no gender or race or ethnicity or religion is oppressed. Now, I realize that's very idealistic, but the alternative is to accept that there's uh, no possibility of it, and I simply refuse to accept that. However, if we are to mimic something that we, we, we have a mentor Mm-hmm. We have a mentor. We have a three billion year old mentor. We do, and that's Mother Earth. Yes, and she has survived with great resilience, and and it hasn't been from a monolithic, you know, top down sort of culture that no. has caused her, uh, her, it, whatever. I'm giving it a female mm-hmm. kind of idea, but 
caused Earth to survive for this period of time has been a great diversity. Yeah, Earth will outlast us. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, let's talk more about that possibly in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Mary Mackey. She's the author of the Earth Song series of books and as well as many other novels, and the last of which is The Village of Bones. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Mary Mackey, and she's um, a novelist, a poet, and uh, her most recent book is The Village of Bones, which is a prequel to the Earth Song series of three books, the first of which is The Year the Horses Came. And uh, Mary, in your career of many decades of writing and publishing, You've seen a lot of changes in publishing, and you talk about women in publishing. And I want to say, I want to tell a little bit of a story uh, on New Dimensions about publishing and women. Because uh, when we first were producing programs, going back to the 1970s, mm-hmm. we would get uh, in, uh, different publishers would approach us and say, oh, here, please do an interview on this person or this person. Mm-hmm. And most always, they were men. Mm-hmm. And at some point in the late 70s, we made the conscious decision that we were going to do at least half programming with women and even add people of color into the programming uh, lineup. Mm-hmm. And so a publisher would call us and we'd say, well, I'm sorry, this guy sounds just great, but we're looking for women. And at that time, Michael had a side job, Michael Toms, who was mm-hmm. my co-producer and co-founder of New Dimensions. He um, had a job working for Harper San Francisco. And he, f- he found how publishing works. And they would have these grand meetings where everybody would meet, all the editors and the marketing people and the whole crew. And they would talk about what they're going to publish next. And it turned out that the marketing crew had a great deal of influence on what gets published. And I feel that New Dimensions had a little bit to do with the turnaround of at least part, you know, that we were part of it mm-hmm. to turn around to have more women published in, at least in the U.S., where they would say, well, you know, we can't, we, we need more women because we can't market this book. We, we need more women. And we noticed that in the late 70s and early 80s, 
we had more choices of women authors mm-hmm. or women people speaking out. Um, well, thank you because Harper San Francisco published the first book in this series, The Year the Horses Came, and I hope you had something to do with it. So I'm I'm indebted to you. I have a funny story about this, and this was not this was not Harper San Francisco. I'm going to leave anonymous who it is. But um, after I had had a series of books published, and then I came back with some you know some more books, and they said to my agent, uh, a publisher. Ultimately, this book was published. It did quite well. In fact, it became a bestseller, but that's another story. But they came to the publisher, and the publisher said, oh, we're not looking for books by women this year. Women have peaked. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. It's like, okay, cat videos. We're not interested in them anymore. And I always thought that was hilarious. You know, this was the early 80s, and I thought, women have peaked, have they? Hang on, buddy. Women have not peaked, you know. Um, but it was, I thought that was one of my interesting um, encounters with publishing. When I first was published, there were very few women who were getting published for anything but domestic fiction and romance. And I was very lucky. I had an excellent agent, Barbara Lonestein, who's still my agent, really good agent. And Doubleday took my first novel, which was a comic novel about McCarthyism, actually, called huh. McCarthy's List, written what I called in the first person insane, because it's the only only way you could approach the subject. And um, so I, I became published. And at that point, it became easier for me. And I, I was published you know, frequently. And I had a New York Times bestseller. I had some San Francisco bestsellers. And, um, you know, I I got sent on book tours and it was, you know, they'd send you to hotels and they'd send a person along with you to get you sandwiches, you know, and it was kind of, you kind of got to be a little bit of a rock star. A very different time. Very different times. Now, I feel very strongly that young writers are in a very difficult situation now because that's no longer happening. They're no longer getting the support and they're no longer getting the publicity. No matter how famous you are now, they expect you to do your own publicity. I know a writer who has a mystery series. I'm not going to name him. I'm just going to say he has a mystery series that is extremely famous. He has sold many, many, many books. He has to hire people to do tweeting for him. Okay? Yeah. He has to hire yeah. other people to do it. So the only, you can only do that if you've already made some money, if you have a day job, if you have resources. My day job was I was a professor. I always had a little dental insurance, you know. I always had a day job. I loved teaching, and I was able to support my writing. I never had to live from it, but it's, people trying to live from it now, it's not easy. It's not easy. And I noticed that it, because I, I get books all the time in my mm-hmm. capacity of, of hosting this program and have for years. And I noticed years ago when I would get something that was, let's say, self-published. Yeah. It was I, I it was hard to look at. It was it was hard to read. The yeah. way that the, the whole thing was set up just graphically, mm-hmm. it was yeah. just not not good. Nowadays, that is not the case. That if it's something from, uh, you know, Amazon Publishing or I, I Universe or whatever it is, it might be self-published from a very small press that is actually a self-published book. It graphically looks the same as if it's from a big right. publisher. You the, can't tell. You can't tell the difference, and it's been well edited, and and not in every case, but you know it. it it doesn't stop me, in other words, just because it's self-published. It doesn't stop me from looking at it in these days. Yeah, I think the problem is volume of, of, of work. I mean, yeah. and some people can write, and some people need to work harder and do more drafts. I, I wrote five novels before I got one published. So I learned my craft by making mistakes. And I think the ease of self-publishing allows 
does people to publish things that later they will realize were not as polished as they would have wished. Right, you know? exactly, exactly. So what you're saying is enjoy the rewrites. You know? Oh, I, I mean, love rewriting. Yeah. You do. Do, oh, I do. Give us some advice on rewriting. Oh, okay. I always say a novel's not written. It's rewritten. You know, once you get it down there, then you can do all sorts of fun things to it. You can change it around. I mean, I, I go to the perfect comma. I take, I, 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 Flaubert is one of my idols, and his great quote is, you know, today I put in, this morning I put in a comma, this afternoon I took it out. You know, I, so I look at the punctuation, I look at the commas, I, I build the characters more, I put in more detail. I spend a lot of time polishing my work, and I absolutely love it. It's my form of meditation. It centers me. It gives me joy. It makes me very happy. And I could do it forever. I think that I've heard that that when you have a character in one of your novels, you will ask that character 50 questions. Yes. Over 50. More over like 70. Yeah. 70 questions. So <laughs> like what kinds of questions would you ask to know that well, character? Well, what I try to do is, and, and this is just a game I play with myself, of course, is I sit and I close my eyes and I try to visualize the character. I'm a very visual person. I try to, let's say it's one of my female characters. I sit her down in front of me and I say, um, so... Uh, what was your childhood like? You know, uh, did you have any traumas? Uh, did you like your parents? Uh, what was your favorite toy? Um, what colors do you like best? Um, what lovers have you had? Uh, what did you like about them? What's your favorite reading material? I mean, this is assuming it's not Neolithic. And I just ask, I have a series of questions I've developed that I ask. And those char- characters, then I, I come, you know, open my eyes and I write down the answers, or I might even keep my eyes open and write them. And by the time I've answered all those, I know them as well as I would know a best friend or sister. And I know them very well. And then when I make them come alive on the page, I don't use all that information, but I know who they are and I know what they'll do. And I know the limits of what they can do. And if they can't do what I want them to do, I have to go back and either change their character or I have to change what I want them to do. Because once you've created a person, it's not like a puppet. You can't just make it do whatever you want. That the whole being of the character uh, informs what they're capable of doing. That's very interesting. I think that Alice Walker has talked about that, that, mm-hmm. that then they start to inhabit you. I mean, They do, and they, then they take off on their own they if you're do. not careful. Yeah, you know. yeah exactly. So that that just reminds me, you don't plan out your novels to the nth degree. I I do, but then I abandon the plan. That's the secret. <laughs> I like to know where I'm going, and it's very important to have some idea of where you're going. So, uh, and also, I have sold novels in what's called partial. I've sold novels on one page summaries. Um, once you have a very good track record, you can sometimes do this. I think it's much harder now. So I will write a two page one two page summary of the plot. Uh, and send it to my agent to see if she's interested in me, you know, pursuing it and going on with it because I, I like to get feedback from her. Um, then I um, I sometimes have written slightly longer outlines. and But the most important thing about an outline is to be able to abandon it, that the joy of writing is discovery. I once, my my novel, the, the Grand Passion, which is about three generations of women involved in ballet, which was a New York Times bestseller, was I had written 350 pages of another novel that wasn't working, and only one chapter was working, and it was a chapter about a woman who uh, went to her sister's ballet performance at Lincoln Center, and that was a beautiful chapter, and everything else wasn't alive. And I was standing in the shower where I get many of my best ideas because of the sound of water on my head is sort of soothing, and I thought, that's the end of the novel I should be writing. And I went into my study, and I outlined a new novel called A Grand Passion about three generations of women involved in ballet. And that was the novel I wrote, and that was my New York Times best-selling novel. It sold millions of copies, you know, a million copies. So, Fabulous. you know, that was just um, 
you know, uh, being able to abandon it, being able to see this is wrong, but this one chapter, a year and a half of work, only one chapter worked, and then it blossomed. And then to be willing to just throw the other out and and go for it. You have to see what's working, you know. Yeah, that's It's very hard, but you have to say it's not the work I put into it, it's how well it works for the reader. There you go. I'm not writing for me, I'm writing for you. Right. But you're writing for you too. I I'm mean, writing you, for you, me you, too you because that pleases me. You feel the energy. Yeah. You feel the it. energy. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Mary, we could just talk about writing all day, I, I think. And I, I know it's a very interesting subject for many of us. I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. Well, thank you for inviting me here. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I have too. I've been speaking with Dr. Mary Mackey, and she's the author of many books, as you've just heard. And the most recent is The Village of Bones, Savala's Tale. And it's a prequel to the Earth Song series of three books, uh, the first of which is The Year the Horses Came. If you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, marymackey.com, and she spells her last name M-A-C-K-E-Y, marymackey.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3607. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.